another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, from the fantastic Big Joni, Stephanie Phillips is on the show. And this is a great conversation. I'm very excited for you to hear it. More on that in one second. But first, to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all your hard work for the show, for free. Very much appreciate that. Uh, and uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Well, for now, Twitter. We'll see how long that lasts. At Lefford Damien or Instagram, at Lefford Damien. Lot of, you know, it's slightly better, I guess, ultimately. I guess, yeah, it is, I guess. Anyway, I'm not on any of those new ones yet. Oh, and uh, I just watched a... You know, I I don't know where to, anyway. Yeah, just find me there. Or I'm also on YouTube. There's also a, a, a youtube.com slash at turned out of punk. You can find the, the podcast as well. And I'm going to be using that a lot more now. But more on that in the future. I know I say that a lot of times and it doesn't materialize. I'm kind of the king of false booking that way. But this thing I'm working on. Anyway, more on that in the future. Uh, and uh, if you want to support the show, tell all your friends about it. Let them all know that we do this podcast over here. We, I mean, Tristan and I, each and every week where we have fun people on talking about punk rock. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on your platform of choice. Please, please pick up a t-shirt, turnedoutofpunk.com. Someone asked me the other day, is Vance still a sponsor? No, Vance is, as you can tell, Vance is no longer a sponsor. So pick up a t-shirt if you can uh, and tell all your friends about it. Let everyone know about it because, you know. More than anything, I just want people to enjoy this thing. That's what I'm hoping for. I also play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. We got pre-orders available for our brand new album, which is coming out in uh, January, January, early January, I believe. January, sometime in January, February, um, called One Day. I'm very excited for you to hear this record. There's some songs on it that are, are my favorite songs that... Uh, that, that I've ever written, gotten right, and certainly some of my favorite songs that Mike's written. There's a song on it that he sings. Whoosh. I'm excited for you to hear this. Anyway, find out more information about that album over at fuckedup.cc. We, I think we got some shows in Canada, too, up over there that we've uh, we got. you can pick up tickets for. So come out and see me. We'll hang out. We'll talk about podcasts. Well, there's, a lot, there's a lot we can catch up on. Bring bring cannabis. It's legal in Canada, so we'll, we'll smoke it out outside, you know. Well, we shall have our own. It'll be, it'll be safe. <laughs> I hope. All right. On to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, Stephanie Phillips from the fantastic Big Joni. Stephanie is also a fantastic writer who has written for tons of different music websites and, and put out actually a great book that I've ordered a copy of myself. Uh, that I read a great excerpt of today. Why Solange Matters, a uh, nonfiction kind of analysis of Solange Knowles. And uh, that came out last year and was on a lot of best of music book lists and stuff. So someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while now. And thankfully, because of the brand new record, which is also fantastic, Back Home on Kill Rock Stars, this thing all kind of came together. Uh, Big Jody's finally going to also make some dates uh, in the new year, it looks like, in North America. So go over to BigJoni.com and uh, check out some tour dates if you're in England and Europe now. And keep your eyes peeled for upcoming tour dates. 
And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to ramble on too much off the top. I got to apologize to Stephanie and to all of you too. Uh, well, I don't know if I have to apologize for this, but I did have a sick kid at home. So I had to wrap it, unfortunately, a little bit shorter than I would have liked. I would have loved to have talked to Stephanie more about her books and stuff like that and, and other writings. But that is what part twos are for. But that explains why this thing ends kind of abruptly. I had a, I had a sick kid at home. So <laughs> all hands on deck that day. All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Once again, check out the album, Big Home, Big Home, Back Home by Big Joni out now on Kill Rock Stars and sit back, relax and enjoy Stephanie Phillips on Turned Out a Punk. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you here. As I said to you off air, I'm a big fan of the band. And uh, I just think, you know, this is one of those things where you're a band that obviously has been around for a very long time at this point, but came on my radar during the pandemic. And now I feel like it's it's almost like you're, you're I, I don't know, I don't mean to put this on you, but almost like starting anew post pandemic with having the LP come out kind of during that whole thing. Well, not that we're out of it, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't really know our earlier, <laughs> our earlier kind of upbringings. I mean, we've been in the DIY scene since uh, 2013 um, and have been kind of slogging at it for a long time and kind of did the usual thing. And I think people just think we kind of popped out of nowhere or we're kind of like one of those, like, you know, like Dua Lipa or something that kind of <laughs> appeared on Spotify playlists and suddenly had some amazing costumes on stage. Um, but no, it's kind of, it's weird to be having like a, a big Jonah revival post-pandemic or during the pandemic. I hope that, I guess, like our Cranes in the Sky single had something to do with that and people had time to like go back to the album and listen to the singles and stuff like that. So um, yeah, maybe we seem like a new cool thing when people were sat at home. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things with DIY punk where you can, you know, as you say, slog it out for years, building your band up, being part of a scene. But it's not until there's sort of like this sort of, inter- there's sort of like this, I guess, international larger music industry that eventually takes notice of things. And it's like, you're a new band to all these people when the reality is you've been a band for years. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I feel very grateful that we've been, doing this for so long so we don't feel um kind of caught out on those kind of stages and in this in these in this kind of place you know I feel like we're we can kind of handle ourselves on any stage at this point which is a good feeling I don't I wouldn't want to be like an actual new band and then get lots of attention and then have to kind of prove yourself (laughs) yeah you know at this point yeah there's all these artists that you know got popular during the pandemic and then they have to play live for the first time having been established I know, yeah. I mean, there are so many kind of little little pop stars and kind of DIY stars that, we, you know, that just kind of have to get on with it and they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, I wish them well. That's why I always recommend just like finding your own community and finding a little kind of punk scene or kind of any kind of music scene because you do have that the benefit of a community. is like people helping you, people celebrating you, whether you're bad or whether you're good. And that kind of really helps you kind of actually develop as an artist rather than getting loads of money pumped into you straight away and then, you know, going straight to Glastonbury and stuff like that. Yeah, like it really is, you know, I mean, the DIY scene, like really is one of the few scenes that actively encourages you to get on stage and cheers you on, 
sometimes more if you're bad at first. Like I think people tend to be very encouraging of bands that are sloppy and just starting out. Like hence why so many sloppy old seven inches are so cherished, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's something that's really um, admirable or kind of endearing about putting yourself out there like that. Um, I mean, I know I think the London DIY scene definitely kind of when I started, I think I joined around 2010. Um, and yeah, it was kind of sim- definitely similar to that. Like the bands, there were so many, I mean, I remember seeing one band and like the drummer just couldn't drum. Like they couldn't like, they're, they're such a lovely person, but they just could not keep time. Like it would just, it sounded like kind of freestyle jazz <laughs> accidentally because it was just like going everywhere. Yeah. But they were like a really popular band in, in, in our scene. Um, and it was really endearing because it did make me think, well, they have they don't care what anyone thinks or whether it's in time or whether it's not in time so you know I could definitely do that too or kind of get on stage and not have to feel scared about it and I do think that is kind of a big thing that you just kind of if everyone can get on stage and everyone you can kind of show people how it's done it kind of takes the fear out of it and kind of lets people know that that it's a safe space for everyone not just the the prettiest person in the room or not just the kind of most technically proficient person in the room. Well, I want to get to this because I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the rise or, or the resurgence of London DIY, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago now, but I, mm-hmm. before we do, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Stephanie, mm-hmm. how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Sure. Um, I mean, I was, so I think, I guess I'm kind of like a noughties, nineties baby. Um, well, 90s kid, I'm, I'm not that young. I'm an, an old woman at this point. Same, uh, same. So. <laughs> <laughs> so all these kids that are like, you know, coming up from the born in the late 90s, it's just so annoying. Um, no, I, yeah, I, so like I kind of came like a teenager around that kind of early noughties British indie time um, and kind of, I guess, New York indie time as well. So I was really into like the Strokes and the White Stripes and Yeah, Yeahs and from British India, I was really into kind of like Block Party and Franz Ferdinand and um, who else was there? Um, there? There was kind of loads of bands at that time. But yeah, it was kind of that kind of uh, guitar kind of style was really um, enthralling to me. And through that, I was just kind of a little kind of music nerd, really. It was something that was kind of a hobby for me, not not really with kind of like all of my friends. Um, so I'd kind of come home after school and go on the family computer and look up different bands and different people that I'd seen in Enemy or in kind of the music magazines at the time. Um, and that's how I found about um, La Tigra and Slater Kinney. Um, and kind of from, through looking at those bands, that's how I kind of discovered Kill Rock Stars and I the record label I would kind of go through there they had like a download page for like a sampler and mm-hmm. I would go through that each mp3 and download all the songs and that was kind of my musical knowledge and that was kind of my starting point of learning about Riot Girl and learning about feminism for the first time um learning about you know the gossip and that kind of really cool garage rock scene um I got really into Heaven to Betsy, Bratmobile um who else is on you know bikini kill all of that was kind of like my proper first introduction to punk and was kind of really really helpful for me it it's amazing how 
different it is, especially at that time in in the UK versus over in well Canada and America certainly is because you have that weekly music press. It found like there was, you know, like when I finally started buying Enemy here on import, like there were always these really kind of cool on ramps to sort of punk culture that were just sort of poking their heads through. Like you're saying, like La Tigra leading to Bikini Kill, leading to Kill Rockstars, leading to this whole yeah. other world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was kind of it's I mean, it was so useful for a teenager mm -hmm. because you had all the time in the world and all the time to kind of rifle through the magazine. And I remember kind of that's how I found about Beer and Pet that kind of um, I can't remember when they came out. It must have been like early 2004. Yeah, exactly. I was yeah, going to say the same. Yeah. But I found about them like really early on because there was like a 50 word review of like a live gig they did in London. Um, and I was living in Wolverhampton at the time in England, which is um, not close to London. It's like a little town in the Midlands. Um, so I'd always kind of be reading through Enemy and like the scene was mainly focused in London and just being like, oh, I hate London. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, or wanting to go there as well. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool that there's like a punk band that are my age and they have a girl fronting it. Um, and I, yeah, again, like Googled it online and I had to kind of go to our local music store. And I think it took like six weeks or two months to get their first single um, shipped in. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was like really, again, like I had no, I had all the time in the world. I could wait two months for like a three song single from a band that I'd read about. Uh, like 50 word from in, in a magazine, like, they, you know, the kind of world is your oyster at that time. It's also kind of cool that you had a music press that would cover a band like Be Your Own Pet. Like that's early on because they eventually, I think, signed to Wichita or they do some records on Wichita later on. Uh, I, think. Ooh, I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. But like the, here they are as this sort of super young punk band getting written up in a magazine that, you know, otherwise would be writing about huge rock stars. And there was still, you know, I remember going over as a band to the UK for the first time and being able to be written up in a magazine that would never happen here. Like there were, mm -hmm. it was like a lot more. I don't, it just seemed like a little more aware of kind of quote unquote underground bands, even though it wasn't truly underground, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like at, at that time, it was a lucky time. So I guess like the music scene in the UK, well, the UK is tiny compared to America. So mm -hmm. it is easier to break. Like the biggest pop band that was kind of coming around at that time were Gossip, who I guess in America would have been still seen as a punk band and like an underground punk band. But Definitely. to us in the UK, that was like, they, they were like one of the biggest bands of that time and really kind of defined it. And so there was kind of a lot of room for people to kind of come from those underground spaces, from punk spaces, from rock spaces and really, really blow up and, you know, become and become move into another world and become the pop star and, you know, like White Stripes and those kind of bands as well. Um, and again, like, because there was more music presses back then, there's Q Magazine, Kerrang, um, Enemy, um, and kind of a lot more music blogs. So there was just a lot more space for to write about people and you had to kind of go to different, you know, I guess the journalists were going to different gigs and kind of keeping an eye out for people. So it was a lot easier to get onto their radar. So how popular was this kind of, I guess, music fan culture with sort of the kids around you? Like, was it, is it like a lot of kids are, are this aware of kind of, you know, this sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, alternative music, or is it yourself or is there like a group of people? Like, I'm always surprised at how, because it's not really mainstream, is it, in, in the UK? 
not necessarily mainstream no it, it wouldn't have been like it wasn't something that everyone liked um but I would say that like um you know that some of the bigger bands everyone would know about but yeah once you get a bit further down you know it it, it just wouldn't be like everyone's kind of cup of tea <laughs> yeah not everyone not everyone at school likes the gossip type thing <laughs> No, but then technically everyone did know about them once they became that kind of pop band and once they were kind of in on, on you know, I'm sure they were on kind of like late night talk shows by that point and they were kind of like a big band. Um, but no, I, I don't think it was something that everyone used to talk about. I didn't really kind of have a lot of friends that had kind of that kind of music in common. I remember, you know, the only thing is I borrowed like a Bikini Kill CD from one of my friends um, and like I go into a house and I saw the CD I was like oh I'm borrowing this and I kind of took it home and ripped it on my family computer so I kind of transferred all the songs to the computer so I could listen to it um, later on um, but that was kind of it really it wasn't like a massive scene um, in Wolverhampton anyway or kind of in local towns if you kind of went to bigger cities like London and places like that I think there would, would have been like a lot bigger, bigger of a scene have you seen uh, Beth Ditto on that new TV show? On on the uh, she's got a few new TV shows, hasn't she? Is she's that like, the she's like a a country music singer in the one that I saw. Oh, I've not seen that one yet. It's it's wild. Like I didn't even know it was her. I watched I was watching the first episode kind of in the background, and my my uh, Laura, my wife, came down and was like, "Oh my god, Beth Ditto!" <laughs> I was like, "That's incredible." So she's having her pop breakout moment in North America right now, I guess. That's amazing because I mean she was always a star mm -hmm. it was like always such kind of like an, an amazing personality and you know getting to kind of tour with them a little bit um god when was that 2019 maybe <laughs> <laughs> years and years ago yeah now um yeah it was kind of like still the same like they still had the hit it was still like an amazing show and that they're still like massive in europe and the uk as well like they had like really big hits here um so yeah, it's just kind of cool to see her transfer that into another space because it was kind of always clear that she would have she would have gone on to do, you know, she can hold a room, which is a really amazing talent. Mm -hmm. No, it's amazing when you look at so the history of of lead singers in in various punk groups, and it's like yeah, there's there's certain people that have that sort of star quality that's like yeah, they they could be in a punk band, but they could be on a show with Travis Tritt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which isn't the worst thing. I mean, it depends on kind of what, how you use that talent. <laughs> yeah. Use it to kind of shout, you know, sell off and kind of, you know, work for some kind of unscrupulous company. Um, that's probably not the best. But, you know, if you're just kind of showcasing who you are, I think that's really cool. Well, thankfully, I lack the talent to ever have to make that decision. I'm always grateful oh. for my limits. Me too. <laughs> I love limits. Uh, so were you playing music at this point? Um, not really. I think, I, I mean, I got my first guitar when I was 16. So kind of like, it was an acoustic guitar that my mum got me for my 16th birthday. Um, and I, I think I tried to like write like little songs and try to play like, you know, download tabs for distillers and bikini kill and try to play songs on acoustic guitar. <laughs> um, I wasn't really, I wasn't playing with other people for one and I wasn't really playing a lot. It was only really when I was, went to university and then I got an electric guitar 
um, using money for my student loan um, and kind of brought that home. And then I started to play a bit more. And then when I joined my first band, when I was like 22, then I was like playing all the time. What was the first concert you ever went to? It doesn't have to be punk necessarily. Oh, the first concert ever? Yeah. It definitely wasn't punk. It was, I don't know if you know this band. Um, it was a, well, pop group. It was a girl group called Bewitched. Oh yeah. In I the 90s. Remember. Yeah. I remember, remember Bewitched. Well, cause, cause, uh, you know, obviously the colonial history in Canada, there's a lot of sort of British pop music and British alternative rock, like Shed 7, I always bring up, was incredibly popular in Toronto. I don't think they were popular anywhere else in North America. Okay. But Bewitched was receiving video airplay on much music back then. So I definitely remember Bewitched. Oh, oh that's cool. Yeah, that was my <laughs> first concert. I must have been like nine or 10. And I went with my friend from school. Um, and they were played at like, I don't know, somewhere in, somewhere nearby in Birmingham or something. They came down like and was kind of strapped and kind of descended from the ceiling on wires. Um, and it was very cool <laughs> for a 10 year old. <laughs> I've always like thought that would be, you know, such a, such a trip to be in one of those types of groups because you get so popular, like popular enough that they're, as you're saying, lowering you down from the rafters in harnesses. But the window is very small. For these groups maybe bewitches had a second act that i haven't heard about here but like for the most part you kind of get your moment and then you have to find another career path and i can only imagine how difficult that would be yeah i mean i'm sure there was there was definitely like a program about this recently about all of those kind of 90s because it's a big like in the uk anyway mm -hmm. it was like a big time for like boy bands and then the girl bands died and that was like like a, a thing that was like a big thing, like when Spice Girls came and then all the other kind of boy bands and girl bands. And yeah, I think all of them now had to kind of figure something else out because it really only lasted for, a, a, you know, a year or two in that decade at most for all of those bands. And I think they just, you know, went into property or married a footballer or, you know, there, were, there weren't that many options. Yeah. Um, and I think for which have got back together, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd like them to get back together. That'd be quite cute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. And like some some girl bands have got back together, like Sugar Babes mm -hmm. were really popular in like the early noughties or late nineties. Um, and then they went through multiple different versions. And then eventually there was a time when there weren't like any original Sugar Babes members in the Sugar Babes. And then they disbanded and now the original Sugar Babes are back, um, which is very exciting for any like, girl like me who was growing up in the 90s listened to sugar babes because they were like cool <laughs> well the spice girls were obviously incredibly popular here and we have the dubious distinction of our mayor writing a letter begging jerry to rejoin the spice girls oh oh wow yeah. why <laughs> i don't know he was a big fan i guess he he wrote a, it was a big media story at the time i remember but he wrote a letter uh, kind of uh, demanding that Jerry rejoin the Spice Girls for the all the people that bought tickets and how wonderful it would be to see her back with the Spice Girls. And we've got a terrible history of mayors in Toronto. Mayors, I'm sure, in London have not been great, too, from what I know. But yeah, mayors yeah. Here... Well, that's very funny. I mean, that's so dedicated, but <laughs> yeah. a bit weird. Yeah. I, th I think someone's got to do what you're saying, a, a TV show about this, but for bands from the era that we're talking about, the early 2000s, that got a little bit of pitchfork love and then had to find the rest of their life after that period. Yeah, I mean, like, 
that must have been a weird period because it was so big for indie but then mm-hmm. obviously there's only so long that you can keep that indie momentum going and then something else has to take over which it did eventually um so I assume they all kind of rebranded a lot of them um, yeah you know like um like Blood Orange was originally Test Icicles um, Test Icicles first and then Lightspeed Champion was like his indie period um which is like really big like in the kind of early noughties at enemy days and then he's rebranded and is kind of in America doing his thing and kind of moved into kind of alternative R&B. So maybe they've just all done that and gone to LA. <laughs> I think, I think some of them are uh, still clinging to the ghost, hoping that their, uh, their uh, nostalgia wave is coming any moment now. Actually it is. People keep using the phrase indie sleaze, which is disgusting to me as yeah. someone who was there. So yeah, I think it probably is going to come back eventually. And then there's going to be like a whole, it's just sad that you, like you get to that age where you, your, you know, your childhood, your your upbringing is going to become cool again. And then like you get to know how much they're kind of mistelling the story. Yeah. It's like it didn't happen like that. Well, that Meet Me in the Bathroom movie is coming out. Uh, oh, th- yeah, that's th- true. I think it's coming out this month. I think it may be even this week that we're, uh, of we're, us talking. So you're right. Now this is where it all kicks off. Get ready for the Indie Sleaze Shudder revival. Oh, no, I can't. I can't take it. I can't take it. It was a weird time. It was a really weird time for women. It, it was kind of cool, but then also it's like, oh, maybe, maybe it shouldn't come back. <laughs> well, yeah, like you're saying, the 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 celebration of the sleaze aspect of it, and like when you actually start examining the real cost of people around it, specifically women at the time, it, mm. it it pretty bleak. You know, there's a lot of parts of that Meet Me in the Bathroom book that aren't aren't great. Yeah, I've been meaning to read it, but I haven't read it yet just because it's a bit it feels like too close it's you know it's too recent history but um yeah no I I I can imagine you know it wouldn't have been great it wouldn't have been great to be a woman in those scenes and to kind of be the only person in the room or you know dealing with that kind of entitlement from different you know different men around you I, I can't imagine it really were there any sort of local punk bands in Wolverhampton when you were growing up or local kind of like bands that were you were into as a kid? Um, so not really. I mean, the, I, God, there were local bands, but, you know, the Wolverhampton and Midlands music scene at that time wasn't amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, because um, if you know, like Midlands music history, it has been really creative and like bands like Steel Pulse and Black Sabbath and really kind of varied um, artists came from um, the Midlands and my area. Um, but at that time, I don't, I don't, I don't remember liking any bands that were around at that time. Um, I remember thinking they were kind of really corny. Um, so I can't remember, there was, there was like a local band, but I can't remember their name now. Um, so it, it wasn't really until I got to, London and you know I was like a grown-up and could go to uni and kind of get, get, you know go to gigs that I started getting involved in local music scenes really. It's interesting you know because I, I think I went over to the UK just prior to like 2010 um, and then kind of watching it going over there as this sort of rebirth happens of DIY music and specifically punk music and hardcore music and it just felt like as you're saying, there was a time there when there weren't a lot of great local bands and there were a lot of cornier bands and, and stuff like that. And just sort of, 
don't know if it's post DIY space for London or what happened, but there may, well, you might, you probably would know better than I did, but there seems like there was a shift that happened. And then now it's gotten to a point where most of the great bands that are kind of coming out are coming out of the UK. So, I mean, that's very nice. Um, so, I mean, when I got into the scene in 2010, it was a, an interesting time. It was a bit of an, it was kind of, you know, a time that was very influenced by the time before and, you know, a lot of, was a lot of influence from kind of feminist punk and Riot Girl, um, and a lot of post-punk from kind of the 80s and 70s in the UK. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the scene kind of revolved around a bar called Power Lunches, um, which is where a lot of artists used to work and play at the same time. So Rachel Ags, who plays in Sacred Paws and Shopping. I don't know if she's been on this before. No, but um, I, we just were on tour with Sacred Paws and they're like one of the best bands ever. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I talked to her about having her on and it's definitely something that I was, so I've been slacking on because she's incredible and Shopping's incredible, but I love Sacred Paws. They're, yeah, they're amazing. We're going to be playing with Rachel Solo very soon in the UK. Um, and her story is really amazing, actually. I'd recommend chatting to her because she's got a really amazing perspective. Um, but yeah, so yes, people like her used to uh, work at the bar and then they'd kind of, you could play at the bar and it was really cheap to put on a gig. So you could, you, you didn't have to worry about losing money if you just started a band the week before. You could put on a gig and play to maybe five or 10 people and kind of get yourself going. Um, and that was like a really big part of the scene. And, you know, the problem with London is that there's never enough space and you're always getting chased from one place to the other. So power lunch is shut down because of the, that area of East London was getting very gentrified. Um, and then we moved to DIY Space for London, which was like meant to be a community space and was run as a cooperative, like members collective. That was in South London. But that part area of South London is also getting gentrified. And eventually during the pandemic, you know, they ran out of money and the council were going to kick them out anyway because they were going to gentrify that area. So that space is closed down now. Um, and in the time from 2010 till now, we've lost so many bars that there isn't really much of a space for DIY in London anymore. It, it's There's a lot of kind of average bars, average pubs, but it doesn't feel like there's a big DIY scene. Um, and also the problem is a lot of the DIY scene people moved out of London because no one can afford it anymore. I've moved out of London. Um, a lot of people in bands, a lot of people that were organizing, putting things on, moved out of London. Um, so it's kind of all kind of spread out. But that wasn't your question. <laughs> your question was about kind of where, where the bands are coming from. No, but that is that totally answers it because like just sort of like yeah. you're saying built scene building, right? Yeah, yeah. So kind of, you know, the yeah. So I'd say kind of in in London anyway, there was a big influence, influence um, kind of, there's a big, it was about community building and about kind of creating scenes. And I think that did help kind of build things up. Um, I also think that it was just kind of like a time for indie and post-punk to come back again. Mm. Um, so a lot of bands that are popular now aren't necessarily from any particular scene um, that I know of anyway. That I, I, I don't remember seeing them around. Um, but it, it, it's just like the right time for guitar music in the UK. It always kind of go, comes around in circles here, um, especially that, you know, everything's so bleak and it feels like the 80s. It makes sense to kind of get out the post-punk and recreate the fall. <laughs> Literally. 
yes, <laughs> very literally in some, in some senses. Um, it, it's, it's also, I wonder, you know, and once again, you know far better than I do, but I've always found like from talking to other artists from London and who had bands that grew up in London, that there's a very, at times, almost predatory music industry that latches onto bands and scenes super early. And I've always wondered if it was maybe that the music industry burnt itself out on the guitar boom of that indie thing that we're talking about, the indie explosion. So this scene had a chance to develop completely on its own, away from prying eyes and just become something. I don't know, but once again, I'm, I don't mean to speak for you on this one. No, I do. I mean, I do think, I mean, you know, in the years I was in the scene, there was never really any awareness of a music industry and in, in that sense. I mean, we were kind of just doing our own thing and creating things for ourselves. And at the most, you know, you go to another town and play a show or you put on a tour yourself and play shows with for local promoters in the other in the DIY scene across the UK. Um, it it never really you never really crossed your mind that you could, you know, have a PR or an agent from a label in your show in you know in the in the in the crowd or that anyone would be kind of trying to scout you. That would be I don't think anyone was thinking about that because we were so far removed from anything to do with the music industry. Um, like you say, I don't think at the time the industry was actually looking for that kind of sound. I don't think people really wanted to kind of deal with punk or deal with anything messy. Um, it just didn't fit in. It didn't, it wasn't sellable. It wasn't kind of going to make anyone money. Um, but as kind of, as time's changing, as things have kind of, switching around I think it's a bit easier for the industry to find bands or maybe not create bands but um, manage them at an earlier stage and so a lot of the bands that have got big now in the UK have been bands that have um, you know have gone to a music college Mm-hmm. And you, you have access and to people in the industry through that college because they're very well connected, which isn't a bad thing, obviously. Um, or they're bands that have, you know, have a particular style or sound that works. And after they get seen at a certain festival or certain gigs, someone calls someone and you know, n- next thing you know, they're on this big label. Some, there is a lot of that now because it's very easy to sell the post-punk sound, the whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, which isn't the worst thing in the world. It is just kind of, it, it just is what it is. It's not, I don't think there's, I mean, there aren't a lot of people from the DIY scene that I knew of that have kind of gone on and gone, you know, release records with any particular big labels. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it almost feels like it's the story of two UK punk explosions happening at once where, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who I used to work with at a, a a job here, and he was talking about all these incredible UK punk bands that he loved, and I was talking about all these incredible UK punk bands that I loved, and we were both throwing out names, and neither one were matching with each other, because, mm. like you're saying, there's almost sort of this, I don't want to say mainstream, but like but like sort of a uh, another scene where the industry is kind of latched onto it, particularly in North America, like these a lot yeah. of these bands are blowing up here, okay. in Canada. Tr- in Toronto. And it's interesting to watch that happen at the same time that there's all a lot of these bands that are coming out of more of the DIY scene that I just love and they're 
finding, you know, create new sounds or interesting places to take punk. It's just, it's fascinating to kind of see the two things happening simultaneously. Yeah. And I'd also say it's because the London scene is so big. Like, um, so the DIY scene I was on was in South London. There's also another South London punk scene that was the one that was getting a lot of coverage. So, um, you know, Fat White Family were from that scene, Goat Girl, um, I want to say Black Midi were from that kind of South London scene, maybe. Okay. Um, and that they were kind of, you know, there was a lot of coverage in all the kind of music press and, um, you know, they became the big bands from a South London scene. But if you said that to someone from the DIY scene, they'd be like, <laughs> yeah. who is that? Or what venue is that? Or, you know, you know, we'd be hearing about these venues, but like, I've never heard of that venue <laughs> before in my life. Um, and so it, it can be quite separated, even though you're probably around the corner from that other scene and you've just have no idea about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, like, you know, as things get bigger, how that happens more and more, right? Because you're like saying at one point, it's so small that everyone knows everybody, like everyone's like two degrees of separation because there's just not many people at these shows. Yeah. Yeah. Which can feel um, very communal, like, you know, in an amazing way, I guess it can also feel a bit too, uh, stifling for some people or, or at certain points in time. Um, it, I guess it depends on what you're, you know, how you're feeling at the time or what you're going through. Um, I do kind of miss, you know, the London scene as it used to be, um, but it hasn't really been the same post pandemic. And um, like I say, I've moved from London now and I kind of trying to kind of get into the scene where I'm at now and, it is just very different to how it used to be. It's fascinating to look at how these two years of complete shutdown affect DIY culture, because DIY culture is such a thing that's handed down from one generation to the next. So it's almost like you have a lost generation in the middle there. Like you're saying, there's these people that you don't age out of it, but you just hit a point where you can't be the center of it anymore. And without that new center to kind of take over, it's interesting to see how people are going to have to rebuild. And it's really rebuilding now, I guess. Yeah, and it, it will be hard to rebuild because it's a lot easier for, um, you know, brands to move in and to claim that space and, you know, offer, um, you know, offer a venue to, you know, some 20-year-old promoters. Um, all you have to do is, you know, sell some Nike shoes and you can put on your night here. Obviously, if they had the guidance of someone from the DIY scene that was a bit older, we'd be like, no, yeah, that's, shut it down. <laughs> that's that's a scam. Yeah. They're getting used, but a lot of young kids probably don't know that because how are you going to know that? You won't be able to kind of guess that's a reality until someone points that out to you. Um, so you know, I think you know, post pandemic, just anyway, people don't have any money, and it's a lot easier to kind of rely on the capitalist way of doing things. I think people. Uh, kind of shunting towards that direction and it's kind of moving things away very quite fast from you know the old school DIY way of doing it um yeah I, I feel like the pandemic was you know I don't <laughs> when I say tailor-made it makes me seem like I'm saying it was tailor-made it wasn't tailor-made but it it had this <laughs> uh horrible almost perfect effect of of driving people towards these things like you couldn't go to record stores anymore and you couldn't so you had to a lot more people are streaming you know like it was a sort of a stream mm -hmm. away from like you can't go to the spaces anymore to witness this band so you're engaging with them on a social media platform 
And it just felt like it was pushing us more to corporate involvement. There are people even talking in, in Toronto about doing away with physical currency, or in Canada, I should say, with physical currency and going mm-hmm. just completely cards. And that's, who does that target? But just the poor people, right? Like it's 100% mm-hmm. just that poor people. And also DIY, like how much the DIY stuff is just about that cash exchange versus going through a bank. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. We have relied so much more on corporations. You know, I've ordered so many more takeaways in the last <laughs> yes. couple of years than I ever would have done. And I never would have kind of relied on the gig economy because that's so destructive. But all of a sudden, it's like, I can't get to the shops anymore. Or, you know, you're, you're ill with COVID, so you can't leave the house. And then it makes more sense to rely on, you know, this brand of this corporation and then you just get used to it and it becomes the norm. Um, and yeah, I, I do think we're in that period where the kind of the faces of capitalism are becoming more blending into our reality. I mean, I'm, I, I'm always trying to be hopeful and I hope that that can change and that people can recognize that that's not, not the way it should be and kind of break from that. Um, but we're still kind of, get, I think we're still going through those emotions to figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your first band called that you mentioned forming a university? Oh yeah, so um, so when I yeah so when I was in uni, I tried to form a band and like answered an ad about you know who wants to start a right girl band and I think we met met up once um, and chatted and then nothing happened <laughs> and then after I left uni when I was about like twenty two, I responded to another ad um, that was kind of. Uh, I can't remember what that was. Yeah, it was like, again, do you want to start a punk band, like a famous punk band? And da, da, da. and that was my first band. We were called um, My Therapist Says Hot Damn. Uh, which, yeah. I, I, I love never the liked, name. <laughs> um, I never liked the name. <laughs> I still don't like the name. We used to shorten it to Mustard, um, <laughs> which is even worse. Um, but yeah, that was like my first band and it was like a feminist punk band and it was really, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am now without that band for sure. Um, it kind of made me focus on my guitar playing. It made me focus on kind of how I want to perform and made me kind of feel like I had like a, a gang, like a feminist girl gang that we could kind of get into these spaces and kind of have fun and hang out. Um, and yeah, it just felt really amazing for for a couple of years that we were kind of this really cool, <laughs> this cool feminist girl gang. Um, but after a while, I kind of felt like, you know, I was the only person of color in the group, and it started to feel like this is this is odd. And then I was start, I kind of realized that like a lot of people of color at the time, you know, that why am I the only person of color in this space? Is this normal? Whereas everyone else and everyone else, if everyone isn't here, what's made them not want to be here? Because I can't be some sort of weird outlier that I'm the only black person that likes punk music in London, which is mm. a very diverse city. Um, so, you know, we were starting to have those questions and that's kind of what led to um, Big Joan in the kind of next iteration, going to, starting to go to black feminist meetings and things like that. Uh, just going back to... Uh... My therapist says hot damn. Sorry, yeah. I, won't, I won't say the name again, I promise. But who would you play with at that time? Like, where, where is it in London oh, yeah. playing around? And 
That's a good point. Yeah, God, I'm trying to remember all the names. Yeah, so it was in London. Um, we're playing with kind of a lot of bands. The scene was really cool then. There were a lot of bands around. So remember there's a band called The Ethical Debating Society that we played with a lot. Um, there's a band called Actual Crimes. We played with them a few times. Um, there were loads of bands. <laughs> Can I Google? Okay. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I found one. So we played with Trash Kit a few times. I remember that was Rachel Ag's first band when she got on the scene. Oh, what do they um, sound like? I gotta, I, I gotta find out this band, Trash Kit. Oh, haven't you heard Trash Kit? I, I'd recommend listening to listen to their first album, and that's like a good idea of like what the that kind of DIY scene at that time sounded like. Mm-hmm. It's like very, um, you can still hear like her, you know, the like Ag's guitar lines. But it's like very kind of chaotic and very lo-fi. And that's kind of what everyone was kind of aiming for. It was a lot of like, you know, this could break at any moment, but this is really cool. (laughs) And I really love that. Um, Oh, yeah, we play with the Tuts a lot. Um, They were kind of going around for a long time. Um, I'm trying to find Wolf. Oh, Wolf were an amazing band. I'd recommend listening to Wolf if you can find anything from them as well. Um, were a lot of these bands putting out records at the time? Because this is like, once again, like a scene that I, I feel completely ignorant on. So this is, yeah, this is the issue of the scene. And um, I mean, some bands put out records, Wolf and Trash Kit did, but a lot of the bands that we played with um, didn't have the chance, they didn't have the funds, or, or they didn't have the time. Sometimes they lasted for under a year at most and were kind of just remembered by being on a poster. Um, so it's really hard to actually document that scene, mm-hmm. um, especially because, again, you know, you're in London and it's very trans, it's, you know, people are moving. Um, and so you kind of have a band that start up and they seem really cool. And then all of a sudden they break up because someone had to leave because they couldn't afford their rent and they had to move out of the city. Um, so, yeah, there's there's not a lot of documentation of this era um in the in the DIY punk scene it's that's one of the uh I guess sad realities of DIY punk in general throughout history is that mm. scenes where people didn't have enough money or as you're saying didn't have enough time because the scene was was too short-lived to put out these records mm. a lot of that stuff's forgotten and it's amazing looking back on it now and realizing scenes like discord and and, and scenes where there was enough funds to put out these records are the scenes that we kind of look back and celebrate the most because there's the most to kind of pour over. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of evidence of them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I kind of worry about archiving and kind of archiving a legacy quite a lot really these days, because it's so easy to lose years of your life because, you know, you don't have evidence for it. You know, we were like a feminist punk band, that were kind of you know quite diverse in terms of kind of gender and politics and but you know if you told someone today that there was a band like that that were hanging around in you know the early you know 2010s people would say well you're lying where's 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 your evidence no. and you know if it's if you don't have a you know a record of it it's it doesn't sound like it really existed yeah and i guess that's what you're saying why the flyers become so important why any sort of shred of existence becomes so key yeah and that's kind of 
that kind of interesting thing about that, you know, that grunge band with the black woman, front woman that was just, well, not just just found, but like has been rediscovered mm-hmm. recently. So no one knew that existed because you know, they did they didn't record a lot, and it was it, it was hard to get that music that um, evidence outside of Seattle, outside of that kind of one city. Um, but knowing that it was kind of they were there all along, it's like well, actually, who's been kept from us all this time? Are there more of us? Are there kind of are we in every scene? And it just hasn't been documented. It hasn't been archived um, because the people that do get documented are the what people that have the funds and the money and the access, and those invariably, you know, privileged or cisgendered, um, white or, or generally male as well. Well, exactly on the same sort of stream, I guess. Uh, Sister Girl Riot out of CBGBs in New York. That whole scene with Honey Child Coleman. There's like no documentation of all these bands. And here's this incredibly vibrant scene, incredibly important scene that it wasn't until I was looking into 1865 and researching Honeychild's history that I kind of uncovered this whole thing for myself. And just, I'm someone who's obsessed with this. I spent all my time thinking about punk rock scenes and the fact that I had no idea about this just brought home how much I don't know at this point. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm the same. Like I, I thought I knew everything and was you know always trying to look for the you know the kind of bands or the artists that hadn't been covered or that had been kind of left aside and you know even I only just discovered about sister girl rights very recently um and it's just a bit like oh it's amazing to find them but then it's why I always feel like that you can't you can't know who the first is of anything mm-hmm. there could always be someone that did it 10 20 30 years before you um, you know, our, just our history is so badly documented, really. I guess that's maybe changed now because I think the tools of documentation are are literally in most of our pockets. If you have the means to get a phone, there is the ability to document stuff, which in, you know, you look at the 80s, like VHS cameras were super expensive. Mm, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And yeah, just having access to, you know, the internet and having a Bandcamp page, you can put anything out and make sure that other people know about it. Um, but then also on the, the flip side of that, you know, because everyone can do it, there's just like a landfill of, of you know, <laughs> bad and good and mediocre stuff. And then it's hard to kind of sift through yep. and actually kind of get things that, you know, get the cream to rise to the top. So, you know, a lot of artists will be kind of stuck on Bandcamp and it's, you know, the people that actually get, you know, the write-ups and get onto music covers and magazine covers and get onto the stages are generally still meeting the same, mm-hmm. <laughs> the same remits in terms of privilege. Mm-hmm. Although it's slowly changing, obviously. Yeah, and I guess you're right in the sense that now because there's all these bands out there it's like we're living in some sort of like high school battle of the bands where there's there's artists that have something to say that that are working at their craft and not saying they're better musicians or whatnot but they they just Mm -hmm. are are putting value into what they're doing and you know i i I, there's a there's several albums worth of songs that are just farting noises on spotify that my kids play so there's there's really like a real deluge of of stuff to distract us from things that are important now (laughs) <laughs> that sounds amazing <laughs> i put it on it was my 
it definitely got a lot of airplay in my house during the pandemic. I think it was the the one thing I could put on that the whole family would agree on for two minutes, and then we'd have to take out the farting noises. Yeah, I mean, you can't listen to an hour worth of farting noises. That's disgusting. I know. And they, they really, eventually, though, it becomes almost like kind of hypnotic. Like, I think maybe there's a, a new style of music to be developed from sampling these farting noises. Ooh. Well, I'm, I'm sure someone is working on that right now. Oh my gosh! Well, let's let's keep moving on and hope we never hear <laughs> that. Uh, so, how did how did your experiences that you were talking about in terms of feeling, I, I guess, marginal or, or being marginalized or feeling marginalized or, or just experience marginalization in this first band affect the way you uh, put Big Joni together or change your approach to putting Big Joni together, or did it? Yeah, it did. I think uh, you know, I. You know, I, I brought some actually of the early Big Joni songs to that first band um, and played them for them, hoping we could play them. But um, that, that never was that never was the case. It just didn't really fit in with the band. Um, so I kind of realised I had to find my own way. Um, and at the time I was um, starting to kind of, you know, go to black feminist meetings and meet other black women and women of color and was really kind of learning a lot about you know identity and um you know connecting with different women of color um and putting that together and you know then going to punk spaces and feeling like I, I was still kind of the odd one out um and what I wanted for a big journey was just to have a space where you know, as a black woman, you can exist and not feel like you should have to apologize for any part of your identity, whether it's loving punk music or being a feminist or being black or, you know, any of it. Um, and so that was kind of like a big reason that I wanted to start Big Journey. I knew that I knew that I had, I wanted to write songs and I wanted to learn how to sing. Um, and I thought that, that it, it was slowly becoming a reality that that was something I, you know, I really, really wanted to focus on, um, and that I couldn't do in the previous band, um, and so yeah, we, Big Journey was something that where I hope that I could have a space where I could, you know, feel safe as a black woman and be in a black space, and hopefully then make something more creative in that space. Was the idea? Do you think there's been a return to? And, and not to say this is strictly political because it's it's your experience and who you are as a person, but do you think there has been a return to sort of uh, open political expression in British punk in the last, I guess, 10 years at this point? But because like obviously the first wave or the second wave of British punk, there's a lot of politics, but it feels like kind of mid 80s on, unless it's far right politics, there's not a lot of overt politics in, in English music with the exception of maybe Chumbawamba and some sort of stuff like that. But once again, it feels in the last few years, there's been a real return to it. Yeah, I think it's, um, I guess, you know, during the mid nineties, there was kind of a lot of like that settling down of kind of not wanting to speak out. And there was a, a labor government from then on and everyone just kind of didn't want to rock the boat, <laughs> even though it was okay to rock the boat. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, the last couple of years, definitely. Um, there have been more bands making political statements. I think that, you know, I think that it, there can be like more of it 
<laughs> it can be more, you know, is it sometimes it can be a bit vague, their political statements. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who are you against? <laughs> or, you know, it's like if you hate the Tories, that's kind of like pretty standard or hate the Conservatives, but that's entry level. It, that's that's like, entry yeah. level, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like what's what is, you know, what's the root of it? Yeah. Um, and so I think I, you know, it'd be great to see more of that and actually see kind of some development in that. Or, if, or maybe there are people that just don't know how to talk about politics and it would just be a waste of time having them discussing anything. Like, you know, I, I go back and forth on it. But, yeah, I do think there has been there's been more space to be, a, a, you know, a lot more open about that kind of thing because before you just had to keep your mouth closed sometimes, I think. Mm-hmm. I think in the 90s in North American DIY hardcore, there's a lot more over politics. Well, not maybe not a lot more, but there was certainly like the Los Crudoses and, and the bands that were kind of going up there and and speaking out at shows. But after that, it also felt like here it went on the retreat for a long time and only recently has kind of reemerged in sort of the last generation. Like it feels like sadly something that does almost go in, in it's almost cyclical a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of people being inspired by other communities, it mm. seems to be anyway, like, you know, the kind of popularity of like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter meant that people were talking about politics more than they would have been before. Mm-hmm. So it helped them bring it to these different spaces where maybe no one thought it, sh- it, it would have been like in music or in, in spaces like that. So, you know, I, you know, I kind of saw... Um, Karen O um, talking, you know, at the kind of one of the Yeah Yeah's recent shows, um, I think it was in Brooklyn. And she was being open about how cool it was to be an Asian American woman in an indie band playing with other Asian American women on that stage. And she had um, Linda Linda's with her and Japanese Breakfast playing on that stage. And that was really amazing. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. But then you would never have heard that from Karen O in the early noughties. Yeah. Because I I don't think there would have been the space and I don't think people would have understood what she was talking about either anyway, if she said it. Do you know, they're just on both sides, it just wouldn't have worked out to be bringing race into the conversation because then people all of a sudden get uncomfortable. It's like, well, why have you mentioned that you're, you know, a different race? Um, And yeah, so it's just interesting to see that kind of how the years have made that a lot easier for people to just be like, yeah, this is this is really cool, or or to just be like, oh, I'm Asian American, and that not to be a controversial. Well, do you think it's like it's changed now where people, it, I don't know, I don't like it, it, it's not imposed upon people that they should have to apologize for taking up space. Like people can take up space, people will take space if they want to. Um. I think I think there's a lot more room to explore. I hope. I think I think that's the idea: is that you don't necessarily have to make yourself lesser. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, sometimes you, it can be beneficial to talk about those things now. In, well, it seems in America anyway. From the, the UK, it's like never beneficial to talk about race. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's always very much frowned upon. Um, but in America, it, it seems from us looking over there that it can be um it can help it can be kind of like help people understand you a bit more and if you kind of explain 
xyz i am this and this is what happened then in some ways it seems like it um it creates like this connection or kind of like an easier way of kind of relating to an audience um i'm not sure i mean i'm not sure if i'm explaining that properly or or if that actually is the case Mm. i guess then with big joni because now you're heading into almost 10 years as a band uh have you found it easier to communicate with these audiences like you know opening for bands like bikini kill going on tour with the gossip like playing to audiences that might not be exposed to diy politics in the same way might not understand race in the same sort of way and and haven't necessarily been educated in this way not saying that everyone in diy is caught up 100 percent on the way they should be but do you find it easier now communicating with these audiences i feel like we were always just doing thing anyway we didn't really seem to care. Um, I remember when we played like a festival in Bristol and it was like the weirdest, whitest, like most cultural appropriating festival I've ever seen. And just before we were about to go on stage in the crowd, there was this girl that had a shirt, a white girl with uh, had a shirt on that said, I will never be a slave. And I was like, you can't stand in our audience and wear that either leave or take off your shirt or make a decision. And she was like, so scared. So, like, oh, you know, sorry, yeah. I'm Italian. It means something different. It's like, well, it, it, it means something different to me. And you know, there's going to be an issue, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't think we ever were worried about what audience audiences thought about us, because again, we weren't really, um, you know, thinking about it from a PR perspective. Um, and I think now definitely that, audiences a lot more seem very receptive when we're talking about politics when we're talking about you know I remember when we opened for Bikini Kill and we said you know we're Big Joni and we're a black feminist punk band and there was like immediate cheer of like people either getting it or really happy that there was a black feminist punk band on the stage like Brixton Academy which is kind of such a legendary stage um so yeah in, in that respect I do think it's got it, it, you know, the, the conversation has changed and moved on definitely. Uh, now, given that, you know, we're emerging from the pandemic, you had an album kind of come out during the pandemic and a, a lot of singles on, you know, larger labels and stuff like that. Is there, is there sort of an impetus to kind of, I don't know, not take the band more seriously, but to, to, to try and tour, to try and get out there more? Do, do you feel that kind of like pull to do that now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we were kind of, when we released our first album in 2018, yeah, 2018, um, you know, we we recorded it without knowing who would put it out because we just wanted to get the songs out there and it only got released because um, we bumped into Thurston Moore and Ava Prince um, at a gig and they were like, oh, we'll put it out and, you know, immediately set up a label f- so we could release the album um but yeah you know then it was just like well we've got an album I guess we're going to tour and then we just kind of went on and said yes to whatever offers we got and we're just kind of like going with the flow of things um and now I think we're a lot more um aware and we're not more able to kind of prepare and plan for kind of what audiences we want to reach because at this point it makes sense to you know, be open to the idea that we could reach a lot more people of colour if we're kind of strategic about it. We could reach a lot more people that need to hear us. 
if we kind of plan this out. So yeah, we really do want to kind of get get to as many people as possible really and, and to kind of play shows. We want to play in America. We'll be coming over next year. We can't announce dates yet, but um, we should be coming over to America next year. And we're really hoping that's going to be the next step for us because I think, you know, no, it's, I think there's a lot more space for difference in terms of kind of in, for people of colour in America than there is in the UK. In the UK, it's very much stay in your lane if you're black or brown. You know, it's very hard to kind of be anything but what, you know, white society wants you to be. Um, whereas if, if we're an English group as well, I, I guess that would give us somewhat of a privilege um, realistically in the in the States. But it just seems like there's a lot more scope for growth and for difference um, in the US. So we're hoping that's going to be kind of like the next thing that we can really aim for and, and, to, and to succeed at. Obviously, you're at a way different point in your life when this happens than Be Your Own Pet was. But was it surreal to you that Thurston Moore's coming up to put out the record, having put out that first Be Your Own Pet? I think he produced it too, right? The first Be Your Own Pet full length? Yeah, yeah. Was it, was it either the first or the second one? Yeah. Um, he produced and released on the on the Ecstatic Peace label back then. Um, and we've, we've um, met um, the singer from Be Your Own Pet. We met Joanna um, because of like a weird tenuous link of like, Estella works at Third Man Records in London, and Third Man Records, their own one of the like co-owners or managers is her husband, who was like Jack White's best friend, Ben. Oh, really? Um, one of the Bens is married to her? Yeah. Oh, one that's of the Bens crazy. is married I to Jemima Pearl. No oh my yeah. gosh, you're blowing my mind with this. I know both yeah. of them, and I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a weird tenuous link from that scene of like how that, yeah, how they all met. And um, so we so one of the Bens was there. Uh, with Jemima and we were like oh I remember you when I was a teenager <laughs> in NME and yeah so we've met her and Estella and Shadeen stayed at their house in Nashville actually and um, when they went on holiday over there um so yeah yeah it's it's quite it's weird it's weird to kind of meet people that you idolized as when you're like a teenager and then you just have to like move on and like play a show or like you know you can't you don't have time to be a fangirl about anything really anymore but that's why we're lucky it's punk, right? Because this is a place where your heroes become your peers and it's just normal. Yeah, that, yeah, that is true. And like very luckily, you know, touch wood, everyone that we've met has been amazing. Um, you know, it's then been so supportive, like mm. Bikini Girl, um, Stata Kinney were really lovely and, you know, have you know actually <laughs> gone out of their way to help us in different in different respects in terms of having us on the stage having having us play the show with them and having us on their compilation things like that um skunk and nancy um had us on uh, support them on the show there which is really cool that's really awesome fun. yeah that was really cool and it she was, was huge like one here. Of the they were huge. Um, were they huge there? Well, I I, know that. once again, I'm I'm speaking from the Toronto bias, but they were definitely a band that was played a lot of much music and got a lot of your radio play over here too. That's amazing, and yet she just, they don't get as much respect as they should do because they were a very rare band for that time. It was mm. like really different um, to be kind of like a multiracial band that were doing kind of like quite you know rock, rock music, but it was like commercially successful it was like really different for the uk um and yeah they were all really lovely as well <laughs> really treated us really well and have been really supportive um you know everyone that we've met 
um, has been amazing. And it's just, it's nice when you're here as a nice too. We, we had at the same time, they would play Skunk and Anxie, Skunk and Anxie, Skunk and Anxie. And Anxie, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. They would play them back to back with Ragadeth, which was a band from Toronto featuring Mishi Me, who's an incredible MC, but they were like a, a like dance hall metal fusion group and they would play them as a two pack on much music. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> I'll send you some links. They're pretty awesome. <laughs> that sounds cool. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. And Stephanie, anytime you want to come back onto this podcast, please, please, the door is always open. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, for coming on the show. And you heard right there. There's Tons more we could talk about. Also pick up Stephanie's book uh, wherever you order your books from or get your books from. Buy your books from. Buy them in a store. I get the store to order the book and then you buy it in a store. You know, I know it's a little less convenient that way, but, you know, it helps support these kind of spaces. And, and we, we need bookstores and we need record stores. And so then go down the street, go to the record store and order Big Home through your record store or Back Home by Big Joni. Oh, my gosh. I got two hours of sleep last night. It was, it's been It's been a long been a long flu season i'm sure i don't have to tell all of you about that but three kids at school it's been a long flu season all right coming up on the next episode of the show a fantastic conversation with a very very funny person from the just announced upcoming season two uh renewed this fool chris estrada is on the show and Damn, I'm excited for you to do this one. This is this is a deep one, and we talk about oh, we go. It's a fun conversation. I kind of it gets teased in the Toby episode, but check this thing out. Check out this fool. It's on uh, Hulu now too, and yeah, it's 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 by punks for punks, by hardcore kids for hardcore kids. Obviously, it's for a lot of other people too, but there's a lot of stuff for us punk kids in there. Uh, that we'll, we talk about it next week on the show. I'm excited for you to hear it. Well, that's it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter, the lives and issues faced by Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. Uh, we need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths and just knock out all that shit. Because as always, we're not talking about politics here. This is just basic human rights stuff. Politics can be a, a, a much deeper conversation. There's there's obviously room to talk politics, but there's no room to talk about not respecting people's human rights. As I was saying that, I realized there's also like a lot of stuff tied in politics that there's not really room for conversation on when I think about it myself. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting I'm, I'm two hours of sleep. I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, get involved in organizations that are making and affecting positive change in this world. If you see organizations that are reaching out for money, doing things in places that you you feel uh, a need for supporting, there's a lot of things to support out there, but there's but there are a lot of needs, and I, I'm sure you can find something that speaks to you and, and just help affect positive change. It doesn't have to be donating money. Donate your time. Show up at events and, and rallies and let your voice be heard and get involved. Let's make this world better. You know, you and me will make the difference. Uh, donate your organs. 
That sounded weird. But sign your organ donor cards. That's what I meant to say. Because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. People uh, can have a whole new lease on life. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. Try meditation. I tried it after years of not believing it, and it really does help. I really do. Holy God. Do I, I believe in it. And uh, I wish I did it more often. And maybe there's space in your life for it too. So try and try it. There's lots of way, free ways to try it. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, uh, what was I going to say? Make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Maybe not on this little sleep. I, I don't know if I recommend that, but anyone can do this shit. Uh, this is it. Thank you for listening. I appreciate all of you. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode.